chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. These are God's words. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lift up, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and error and infallible word. You may be seated. How we doing, saints? Amen. Amen. Going to see how that energy flows through this sermon. Amen. Um, it's really good to be with you guys, um, even in my fatigue from, uh, from all the preparation on this past week. Uh, with me and my, my bride, I still find myself refreshed in the opportunity to be able to share God, from God's word with you. Um, you guys know how much I speak about my father because uh, my father is obviously one of the godliest men that I've ever known, and he left an indelible imprint on my life. And not just how I think about this life, but how I think about the next. Uh, one of the most, uh, one of the more lasting memories that I have of my father was a conversation that we had early on in his diagnosis after, uh, or his diagnosis with brain cancer. And I remember us going through all of the scenarios in, in, in terms of what's ahead for him. And of course, you know, I'm an I'm a analytical guy, and so I'm thinking analytically as I'm having that conversation with him, and we're talking about surgeries, and we're talking about treatments, and we're talking about medications. And we spent a lot of time talking about all those different things um, in terms of just what was ahead. And then after all of that discussion, um, my, father, my father closed it out in his own simplistic way, the way that he normally would do something like this. Uh, he closed it out by saying, listen, I'm not worried about all this. Uh, the Lord's going to take care of you guys. And the worst thing that can happen to me is I die and I go home to be with the Lord. The worst thing that can happen to me is I get to wake up to eternal life. Saints of God, we need to be reminded that no matter how bad this life can get here on earth, the Christian has hope that extends well beyond this life. 
into the eternal. However, we also need to be reminded that no matter how bad or how good, rather, this life can be here on earth, that the one who does not place his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has no hope beyond this life and only torment in the eternal exists. This is what this parable is about. The fact that no matter how bad life can get on this earth, there is good for those who trust Jesus Christ as Lord, and there's an eternal good that awaits them. And no matter how good this life on earth can get, there is terrible and horrible bad that awaits them who don't trust Jesus Christ as Lord on the other side. And so we have this life before a reversal and this life after a reversal that we read about in this parable that Jesus tells us. So in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, we pick up with life before the reversal. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The first man in our parable is a man with tremendous wealth. We learn that this man is wearing purple garments, a very distinguished look in the ancient days. Some scholars and theologians actually argue that the garment is blue and that this most likely represents the really, really, really good stuff, uh, clothes and cloth that is produced from dye that has been secreted by sea snails or secreted from sea snails or secreted by sea snails, rather, a cloth that would have been worn by the ruling class. Rabbis, in fact, were held to having at least one blue thread in their shawl in their rituals. And this man was robed down in the blue threads. The linens also had or would have been considered very pricey that he was wearing. In other words, most of society would have saw these clothes as their very, 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 very special occasion gear. But this guy treated this gear like it was just his daily wear. This is, what, this is what he woke up and put on. One scholar wrote about this man, if clothes make the man, this man has it made. But not only does his, is his gear right, his clothes are right, but this man is also eating and feasting from the finest foods that one could ever taste. In fact, it says that he has these sumptuous feasts, big feasts, every day, every day, sumptuously dining and sumptuously eating, which is another way of saying very expensive-looking food. So he is very expensive-looking feasting every single day of his life. This man has everything he could possibly want. He has the money. He is eating outstanding and delicious meals, and he is robed in the best gear possible, and certainly he has great power, certainly he has great influence. But interestingly enough, the rich man has all of this stuff, but he remains nameless in our story. Now, we might be led to believe that there is nothing really important to see in that exclusion for, I mean, I mean because... There is never a name in any of Jesus' stories until we turn to the next character, the poor man. Verse 20, it says, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. A poor man named Lazarus. This man does have a name. 
a name that actually can be traced back to the Hebrew name um, Eleazar, Eleazar rather, which means the one who God helps. Lazarus, the one who God helps. It seems that this is the only parable that Jesus tells us that the character has a name. And, I, and, and between these parables, or out of all of these parables, he gives this one character a name, and he doesn't give the other character a name. He gives the poor man a name, and I think that's important. While the rich man is defined by his surplus, however, the poor man is defined by his need. Scripture tells us that he was laid at the gate, and that's probably too gentle of a word, to be honest with you, to capture what is truly happening here. Because the word laid that's used for laid here is the same word that would have been used for tossing aside trash or disposing of waste. He was practically disposed of. No one had any use for the man, so they threw him there at the gate in hopes that maybe he could get some of the crumbs from the rich guy's house. And this is a large gate, by the way. This, this word here is actually a word that's used for a large gate at the front of a big city or at the front of a big um, fortress or a palace of sorts. So this large gate is, uh, is there because it's highlighting the scale of the rich man's house. Because, again, it paints a picture of a big, uh, a big gate in front of a city or a palace. So the rich man is living on a grand scale, but also... Because gates are where judgments were often rendered. And here, in some small way, this rich, well-dressed man is walking by his self-inflicted, self-imposed judgment every time he walks by this poor man every day. Not only is this man tossed at the gate of this man, but he's also sick. He's isolated. Lazarus is, is covered in sores, ulcers, meaning, or, or it could signify at least two things. Number one, he is in great pain and discomfort. And number two, he is socially ostracized because no one will dare touch him. Have you ever seen that homeless person where you say, oh, my goodness, look at how terrible they appear then even in the quiet of your heart, you say, well, I'm not sure I want to touch him. Not sure what's going on with him. Not sure what he has. This poor, this hungry, this homeless, this sick man in tremendous pain, socially ostracized, lacking human connection, lacking human touch because no one will touch him. He's hungry, and not only is he hungry, but he's, humili he's, he's humiliated. Verse 21, it says, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table? Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He longed to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. He was looking for crumbs and was denied crumbs. As I read this, this as I read this, you know, text this week, for the first time I was stopped dead in my tracks because it clicked for me. 
The application extends far past crumbs here. This more importantly is about a poor man longing for something that the rich man wouldn't really ever miss. How many times have you withheld something from a homeless person that you yourself wouldn't ever recognize was ever gone? Maybe it's a small lunch. Maybe it's a Gatorade for them on a hot day. Maybe it's more. But we are so quick to walk by and say, I can't change his or her situation entirely, so I'm not going to change their situation at all. We'll walk in a store and a man says, hey, do you have some change? And we often respond, I don't have any change, while thinking to ourselves, well, you don't really deserve change anyway. Because you're probably just going to take it and feed an addiction or something. You know, more and more as I'm passing by men and women on the way into a store, I've started responding with words like, brother, I don't have any change, but have you eaten today? Can I, can I get you a snack or can I get you something to drink while I'm in there? Had guys say to me, yeah, man, two-liter Sprite would be great. I say, all right, cool. I go in there, grab a two-liter Sprite, bring it out. And that's not making or breaking me in any shape, form, or fashion. And that's not aiding or abetting an addiction in any shape, form, or fashion. Surely if this man or woman is taken captive by mental anguish or a physical ailment as an image bearer of Jesus, doesn't he or she deserve a couple of bucks out of my account? Surely, even if this man or woman is trapped in a cycle of substance abuse as an image bearer of Jesus, doesn't he or she deserve my compassion? I mean, yes, we can talk and we should talk the big plans about taking the homeless off the streets and caring for the mentally ill. But oftentimes, we don't carry the fortitude and compassion to share the crumbs from the table, and that's me included. And so it's hard to talk about the big plans if we're not even willing to share the crumbs. This man is not only hungry, though, he's humiliated. Scripture tells us that there are dogs near him to lick the sores on his body. And they're all over his body, attempting to bring a comfort that no one else is willing to offer. Do you see that? This poor man is loved and cared for better by the dogs, a species beneath his humanity than any other actual person. The rich man had big and expensive meals that filled his belly every single day, and yet he had this poor man thrown at his gate and receiving more relief and comfort from dogs than he himself was apparently willing to offer him. It seems that this rich man would rather feast lavishly every day and walk by this poor man, unbothered, at his front gate every day. One man was rich, the other man was poor. One man looked like new money every day, the other man was clothed in his own sores. One man was fully, was, was full every day on the finest cuisine, and the, and the other man was barely collecting crumbs for his daily bread. One man was probably regarded, well regarded in community and probably included in all of the big dinner party invites. And the other man was in a condition that only a dog could love. One man had everything, the other man had nothing. 
And yet it appears that in the grand scheme of eternity, none of that would ultimately matter because one man knew the Lord and the other man did not. One man had everything but God, so he had nothing. He doesn't even have a name in the story with names because he is not known by God. One man had nothing but had God, so he had everything, including a name and an identity and a story because he is known by God. One man has an eternal destiny of bliss and peace and joy, and the other man has an eternal destiny of pain and chaos and torment. Family, this is the great reversal, and it is as real as the room you and I are sitting in this morning. Don't be blinded by the flashing lights of power and celebrity and money and success. Pursue whatever you pursue in place of Christ, and it will leave you nameless in the end. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. happens to these two men as they are transitioned into the eternal. And this is the life after the great reversal. Because the reversal happens immediately, doesn't it? In an instant, there is a great reversal between these two men that will remain for the remainder of eternity. Suffering reversed for all of eternity. Poverty reversed for all of eternity. Wealth reversed for all of eternity. Plenty reversed for all of eternity. Immediately, a man that was laying at the gate of a rich man is, is, is escorted by angels into the heavenly places. And immediately, a man that was resting in luxury is buried. That's what it says. There's no escort. It's very cold, very informal, just Buried. That's what, they, that's what they give us. And without, without divine escort, he is assigned a dark corner in the halls of eternal torment. Prior to death, the rich man sat next to royalty. But now in the afterlife, royalty, Father Abraham, is far away and out of reach, and it will be that way forever. Prior to death, Lazarus couldn't get an audience with the wealthy and influential. In fact, the only company he had was the dogs. And now he sits in the company of Abraham, the father of the faith. From verse 23 onward, there is this interesting conversation between the unknown rich man from hell and Abraham. And that is far more likely present in the story for teaching purposes Solely, for I don't suspect any actual conversations from hell to heaven is taking place. Nevertheless, what Jesus gives us in this conversation is crafted to help us understand the eternal weight of hell. After this great reversal, the rich man proceeds to make two requests. And because he is in hell, 
Both of those requests are ultimately denied, but it's interesting to understand why they're denied. The first request he asks is for, uh, he makes is for comfort for, from the eternal suffering. Comfort from the eternal suffering. Luke chapter 16, verse 23, he says, or rather in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, are a great, a great, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Just, just dip the end of his finger in the water in order to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice that hell is torment. It is the place of eternal punishment. It is the place of eternal darkness. Now, I've read this quote to you from C.S. Lewis about hell before, but I feel like it's relevant again, so I want to read it again. This is C.S. Lewis's thoughts on hell. He says, hell is the full manifestation, or someone summarizing Lewis saying, he says, hell is the full manifestation and realization of separation from God. Hell is an everlasting ruin, a decay, a crumbling, retreating into yourself. It's a loss of all rationality and joy, a plunging into misery, but it's a self-plunging. It's a gnawing and an ache, but it's oriented inward, downward into the abyss. It is, in one sense, the opposite of heaven. Heaven is this ever-increasing further up and further into joy and into God and into life. And hell is the opposite of that. It is the everlasting movement away from God, end quote. Hell is what happens when the sustainer of life is no longer sustaining it. It is what happens when the giver of joy is no longer supplying it. It is what happens when the source of love is no longer present to, pro to provide it. It is what happens when the provider of hope is no longer present to give it. Hell is and will be filled with the anguish of eternal suffering because God is not present. This is what the rich man is feeling. And we can try to sweeten this message as much as we like, but this is what Jesus says awaits those who say in their hearts that they, are, they have no need of the one true and holy God. Because what happens is when you say, I have no need of the one true and holy God, eventually and tragically, you are granted that request. You are given that freedom. And that freedom is hell, literally. But also notice that all that is good and filled with hope, or, or all, all those, rather, the people that are filled with good and filled with hope are no longer accessible to this man. People like Abraham and Lazarus, the one man that this rich man passed daily at his gate on the street, laying at his gate like trash, he is no longer accessible to him. 
But nevertheless, this man who was once wealthy makes his request. It's almost like he's, he's, a, he's going back to his days when Lazarus at, was at his gate. He's, he's fetching for him and calling, hey, send that guy. Let him, let, him, let, him go and tell, let him go and give me some water. But the one who is covered in sores, although he is now seen as a provider for this man, he's begging for him. He's separated from him. He cannot reach him. He cannot get to him. The one who he thought he had no need for, he's now begging to send him so that he can get a drop of water. Abraham responds, he says, listen, you had good things. And when you had those good things, you never considered they might be used to be rich towards God. That's what it is in summary. You just simply consume those good things on yourself. And so those are the only good things you will ever remember for the rest of eternity. You know, Candy and I, we recently went to New York for a couple's retreat, kind of getaway time just for us, to, and, and, and thanks in part, in large part, to the church, because you guys blessed us with some money to get away in. We were like, hey, let's, let's just not get away. Let's get away. This is, might be an opportunity to go somewhere we've always wanted to go. And so during our, during our time there, we made several trips on the subway. And on one occasion we rode on the subway, there was a man who was troubled, troubled mentally. But even in that state, he rose up and he preached the gospel as best as he knew how. And as he spoke, and as he's sharing the gospel, I noticed the disdain on some of the people's faces, the, whisper, the whispering snickers and chuckles. But I also noticed this man troubled in mind, pouring his heart out to make Jesus known as best he could. I reflected on that man this week as I thought about Lazarus because he seemed to be very much in line with him, mocked on this earth, but glorified in the next. Family and friends, one day the very people who were in Christ that we mocked and laughed at will be those who exercise dominion over the new creation. May we never forget it. May we never forget it. But notice also that the appeal to earthly relationships is insufficient to give this man entry into heaven. Verse 24, he calls out, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This communicates that this man is most likely a Jewish man who is a, appealing to the bloodline and saying, don't forget me, Father. Remember, I am one of yours too. I'm a child of the covenant. Send relief for me. But Jesus tells us otherwise. John chapter 8, verse 39, Jesus says, when they responded to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard about God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And he goes on to tell them that their father is Satan. You see, we are not granted entry into the next life based on our natural bloodlines. It doesn't matter if you descended from Abraham by blood if you don't descend from Abraham through spirit and promise. Meaning, if you don't have Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, you will not gain entry. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, there will be no relief. 
You can say to yourself, man, I grew up in church with my mom and my dad and my cousins and grandma and them. It does not matter. Bloodlines don't count. You have to know Jesus Christ for yourself. So because the separation exists from God and the separation exists from all of these, uh, these and not just not just God, but also all that's good in these people, Abraham and Lazarus, and the family relationships that this man once had, they do not translate into the new creation. This man in hell finds no relief. So he makes one final request. He asked it that they would give a warning to the willfully blind. He says, verse 27, then I beg you, I beg you, Father, send him to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Saints of God, that is a powerful moment in Scripture. Because the request sounds fairly reasonable. Man, if you come back from the dead and tell them that their brother is suffering in hell... They'll get right. They'll turn. They'll say, man, oh, my goodness, I, I didn't know it was like that down there. Get, let's, let's, let's get right. Let's get our act together. But Abraham says, no, it's not how this works. They don't listen to prophets. They don't listen to Moses. In other words, if they don't listen to the counsel of God as it is articulated in Scripture, then they won't believe anything. Here's what's interesting. John chapter 12. Would you turn there with me real quick? John chapter 12. Looking at verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to skip down and look at verses 17 through 19. John chapter 12, and then we'll come right back to this Luke chapter 16. So this man is saying, listen, if you come back from the dead, you tell my brothers... They will listen. They will repent. Abraham says, not a chance. They don't have Mo if, they, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not listening. Look at John chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Looking at verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Pay very close attention. These men 
looked past the resurrection of another Lazarus because they could only see what they were losing. They saw that they were losing power. They saw that they might be losing influence. They saw that they might be losing control of the people. They saw that they might be losing whatever else comes with this, wealth and freedom and all the other things that we fear losing. They saw that they were losing something. And because they only saw what they were losing, they missed someone who carried a story back from the dead. And pay attention even closer because Abraham's point is confirmed in a resurrection story about a Lazarus. He says, no, I'm not sending Lazarus back from the dead. And, some, and somewhere in heaven it's like you hear the voice of saying, we've already sent you a Lazarus and you tried to kill him. So, of course, you're not going to hear this Lazarus. You didn't hear that Lazarus. Saints of God, we think that the only thing that is holding us back from faith in Christ is the miraculous. We say to ourselves, oh, man, if, I just, if, if Jesus was walking the earth, I would, I would absolutely line up and serve him. If he was doing miracles, and I would, I would absolutely li listen, listen. Your sin is the obstruction, not the miraculous. Your sin is the obstruction. Your heart wanting what it wants keeps you from turning to Christ for salvation. These men had a man rise from the grave, and instead of them bow the knee, they said, how do we get rid of him? He's getting in the way of our affairs. And don't you think for one second that that is not the heart of all of us when we close up and want our own way. Again, saints of God, hell is reserved for those who say, I do not want God. That's, this, this, is, this is not simply a place that people are like, that people go down clamoring for God. They might be clamoring for comfort, but they're not necessarily clamoring for God. And so even if the miraculous was given to you, if your heart has been hardened to say, I do not want God, then it is not the miraculous that will turn your affections. Now, you see, there are many here on this day that see the resurrection of Lazarus and then crowds begin to fall. They say, wait a second, this, this guy's a real deal, right? So, so but, but those hearts, those hearts are going to turn whether Lazarus shows back up or not. And that's Abraham's point. Abraham's point is that you have the prophets. Abraham's point is that you have Moses. In other words, you have the word and you have all that they have declared. In fact, you have what they said about they said about this one that's to come. You have the promises that were made. That there is a savior that is coming to right all that is wrong in the world. That there's a savior that is coming to forgive and 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 forgive sin. That there's a savior that is coming to restore all that is broken. And that savior is going to live a perfect life. 
A Savior is not going to have a spot or a wrinkle on him, and he will be the last, last lamb that is slain. He will go to the cross and he will hang for all of sin, all of our sins. And that Savior will resurrect from the grave. He will bring a story back from the dead. And those who are truly, truly his, they will respond. Why? Because the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. The good thing, saints, that we receive in this life will be of no consolation to us if in the end our lives are not rooted in the finished work of the one who came back from the dead. And the bad things that we receive in this life will have no hold on us in the end if our lives are rooted in the finished work of the one who came back from the dead. You may say to yourself, man, this life is really terrible right now. If you are in Christ, I assure you it will get better. You may say, man, this life is really, really good for me right now. If you are not in Christ, I assure you it will get worse. That is the truth that Jesus articulates to us in this parable, and that is the truth of the gospel, amen? May we adhere to it. May we heed it. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you so much.